Chapter 3 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 3 Galileo's Villa. Chief among the memorable villas which girdle Florence and have been consecrated by the footprints of the illustrious dead are the villas in which the renowned Galileo resided, the villa where he lived and hoped and rejoiced, the villa where he suffered, despaired, and died. The Villa del Gioiello, usually called Galileo's Villa, is situated beyond the hill Achitrici. It is an ivy-draped, gloomy, desolate-looking abode, and the heavy atmosphere of the place is rendered more oppressive by the melancholy inscription on the outer wall, which records that in this villa the great astronomer and philosopher passed the closing years of his life, afflicted with blindness, the victim of papal persecution, abandoned by his powerful Mycidian patrons, but still surrounded by a few faithful friends who reverently received the last inspirations of his towering genius. Not far from this villa is the rude tower called Galileo's Observatory. But it is in the quaint old villa which crowns the lovely height of the Bellesquado and is also celebrated as the residence of Guitardini, the historian, Galileo's contemporary and friend, that Galileo passed fourteen years before bigotry's iron heel crushed out of his heart every buoyant and expectant throng, and before the hand of affliction had drawn the pall of blindness between him and that glorious firmament whose luminaries, watched by his speculative eyes, had filled the world with the new light of science. There is a bust of Galileo near the northern entrance of the villa, with a tablet chronicling his residence within those walls. Upon what is now called the Piazza di Bella Squardo opens the somewhat imposing gateway which leads to the front entrance of the villa. Through a brief carriage path, lined on either side with Larostinus, arbustus, yellow jasmine, cluster roses, with a few fine trees shooting far above the flowering shrubbery. The grounds are by no mean extensive, but they are so dexterously laid out in winding walks, dotted by tiny gardens, with here and there sudden openings among the trees, disclosing the most enchanting views, that they produce the effect of both space and variety. It is said that Galileo had a passion for flowers and delighted in cultivating his garden with his own hands. What aspect these limited pleasure grounds must have presented nearly two centuries and a half ago, it is not difficult to conjecture. For Galileo, who trod them for fourteen years, could not have cherished his floral taste in such a suggestive locality without causing that teeming earth to bloom out 
into even fuller, richer beauty than it boasts at the present day. This villa was formerly called Villa Alabizi, but it now bears the name of Villa del Umbrellino, Villa of the Little Umbrella. It received this designation from a rudely shaped species of wooden umbrella with a circular bench running round the stem. This unpoetical-looking substitute for a summer house stands in the northwest corner of the grounds, which juts out over a green valley and overlooks a charming prospect. The Italians have so decided a passion for nicknames that after this extraordinary umbrella bower once made its appearance, they, doubtless, could not be induced to call the villa by any high-sounding title. The little umbrella can be seen far down the road towards Florence before the villa itself is visible. It is consequently the Villa del Ombrellino to every Italian. And a most delightful retreat the unpicturesque umbrella affords. To one perched upon the circular seat, in the days we could tell of, it was a never-failing enjoyment to watch the changing aspect of the surrounding scenery, for with every alternation of light the landscape varies, some new charm is evoked by the play of the sunshine, and some loveliness, very palpable before, has disappeared in the shadow. But the prospect revealed from this clumsy yet cozy resting place is far surpassed by that which the terrace commands. The center of the roof of the villa, a square of about twenty feet, is flat and surrounded by an iron railing. Furnished with a sofas, table, and chairs, it makes a most fascinating terrace drawing room. There before you lie the whole city of Florence, with its stately palaces and ancient churches and striking towers standing out clearly against the blue sky, or only dimly suggested by shadowy, dreamy outlines through the golden-gray mist of morning or evening, and there is the vine and olive-clad valley of the Arno, and there is the Cassine, the favorite promenade or drive, the Hyde Park of Florence, and there is the Pogigio Imperial, and, leading to it, that abrupt black line of cypresses which sign the way to Florence, and Fiesole, the ever-beautiful, and San Miniato with Michelangelo's fortification, and the encircling Apennines, the hills of Vallombrosa and Carrara, and on every side countless villas gemming the landscape, and teeming with romantic histories, and all down the undulating slopes of the Bellasquado Hill, the greenly fertile farms displaying their treasures of grapes and olives and figs. But who could venture to describe the glorious and ever-varying sunsets watched from that terrace, or the marvels conjured to heighten the landscape when the molten moonlight lent its own mysterious beauty to the scene. But when the moon was absent, and even when the stars were obscured, Florence was still visible, 
outlined by her myriad lights, and on the evenings of her illuminations those outlines were clothed with a flickering garment of fire, wonderful to behold. In 1863 and 64, the writer was a member of that little circle that occupied this villa, and that terrace where Galileo once gazed upon the stars was the favorite place of gathering in the summer evenings. Here tea was served, and guests were received. Often from this terrace the melodious voice of the songstress has floated over the hills and enraptured the ears of listeners in the neighboring villas. And, strange to relate, this terrace now and then witnessed rehearsals of the little dramas, afterwards performed at the English Dramatic Drawing Room, by the company of amateurs, who, in the winter of 1864 and 1865, devoted their talents to charities. Once, during our sojourn in the Galileo Villa, its spacious old entrance hall was the scene of a dramatic representation, peculiarly appropriate to a Florentine locality. The play was entitled The Unknown Masterpiece, a free translation of The Chef d'Ouvre de la Incanou. The great Florentine sculptor and painter Michelangelo was one of the heroes, personated by an American sculptor of talent. The Grand Duke of Florence, Cassino de' Medici, was represented by a descendant of the Bonorati family, from which Michelangelo sprang. The heroine was embodied by a lovely golden-haired American maiden, whose delicious voice has given her a foremost rank among the nightingales of Florence. A youthful page was played by the marvelously gifted little daughter of T.A. Trollope, who enchanted the audience by her wonderful vocalization. The young girl, who afterwards invents so much talent at the dramatic drawing room, made her debut on the occasion as the bewitching boy student, brother of the young sculptor who was the hero of the drama. The latter character was admirably personated by a rising young artist, also a member of the dramatic drawing room company. Such a festival seemed particularly appropriate within the walls which the presence of Galileo had consecrated, for he was himself a great lover of the drama, and declaimed with much effect. He delighted in music, and performed with so much skill upon several instruments, especially the lute, that he had been counseled in his youth to become a professional musician. In truth, Galileo was rich in accomplishments, for he was also proficient in drawing, and evinced a taste for all the arts, besides possessing very wide information, a fondness for literature, and a great command of his pen. Galileo Galilei was born at Pisa in 1564. His family was noble. His father designed him for a physician. He entered the University of Pisa at an early age and quickly distinguished himself. He had not completed his 25th year when he filled the chair of Professor of Mathematics. 
in the cathedral of pisa the stranger is still pointed out the lamp which suggested to galileo by its slow and uniform swinging the possibility of a pendulum as the motive power of clocks he was then only eighteen years of age he wrote some remarkable essays based upon the motion of this lamp but it was not until nearly half a century later that he actually succeeded in making a pendulum clock it seems almost incredible that the man who invented the thermometer improved the compass constructed the telescope which disclosed to him the irregular surface of the moon caused by her valleys and mountains the spots upon the sun and showed that the milky way was a lengthened cluster of countless stars at the man who revealed to the world these unimagined facts and who confirmed and promulgated the truth already made known by copernicus that the planets revolved about the sun which is the centre of our system that this man should have been all his life surrounded by enemies and detractors should have lived through a series of relentless persecution to die their victim a frank but incautious criticism sowed by the rapid springing seed of galileo's first disgrace giovanni de medici the natural son of cassimo i had invented a machine which he submitted to the young Galileo. Giovanni was a poor engineer and a worse architect, as the tomb of St. Lawrence, for which he furnished the design, testifies. Galileo, who had not yet learned the humiliating lesson that policy is expediency when princes and potentates are to be dealt with, publicly criticized the invention sentence of banishment was the result of this temerity he took refuge in venice and remained in exile for eighteen years he rapidly achieved celebrity very soon he was elected professor of mathematics at padua there he published a treatise on fortifications one on mechanics and an admirable work on proportions but galileo yearned for florence and his biographers relate with some severe comments that he availed himself of an occasion to be restored to the good graces of the medici by a delicate piece of flattery one of his most important telescopic revelations was the discovery of the satellites of jupiter he gave them the name of satellites of the medici and published in padua his treatise on these satellites this compliment threw open the closed gates of his country he received permission to return to florence and joyfully availed himself of the longed-for privilege his honest ingenuousness had banished him a stroke of policy affected his recall he bowed to the exigencies of the times it was his nature to conciliate rather than to combat his opponents all through his life either from timidity or from an instinctive shrinking from strife he tried to avoid contest he strove to win to convince to influence and not to oppose thus we too often find him apparently yielding to those who are too obviously in the wrong instead of combating their errors 
In that age, any deviation from accepted dogmas was called heresy, and nothing ruined a man more quickly and more certainly than the accusation of heresy. Galileo was at heart a sincere Catholic. He loved and had perfect faith in the doctrines of the Church, and he believed in the Scriptures. When the clergy declared to him that the discoveries he had made, if veritable, contradicted revealed religion, and were wholly at variance with scriptural statements, it did not shake his faith in the religion of Revelation. He knew that the facts which he had proclaimed were unquestionable, but he had an internal conviction that scientific truths could be reconciled with scriptural, even though his own spiritual insight might not be deep enough to show their accord. One of the chief arguments of his priestly accusers seems to have been that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still, and it obeyed him, and that if the sun had not been in motion, it could not have been commanded to stand still. Galileo replied that in the Bible we read that the heavens are solid and polished like a mirror of brass and that a man had only to raise his eyes to see that this language could not be interpreted literally. These and similar arguments and quotations from sacred writ were silenced by the cry of blasphemy. Guicardini says of him that he wanted to reconcile what was irreconcilable, and adds, The philosopher could not listen to advice. In vain all his friends bade him remain quiet, told him that it was impossible for him to combat so many enemies and to triumph over so many rivals, that in the end he would only draw upon himself a thousand new unpleasantries. He listened to no one. He complained of being received coldly and did not see that he himself tried the patience of the cardinals by his importunities. The French Chassels, one of his most recent biographers, writing in 1862, remarks, A man of the world would not have attempted to wage war against calumny, like a child, to seize the lightning and fight against the thunder. Galileo did not know that calumny is more terrible than thunder, the stratagems of envy more subtle than lightning a thousand times more rapid, more impalpable, more destructive. After Galileo's return to Florence, having published a work on hydrostatics and another one upon the spots on the sun, he resolved to go to Rome. This mission was a singular one and betrays the self-reliant simplicity of his character. He was confident that his own eloquence, the precision of his calculations, the authority of his name, the weight of his genius, would win over the incredulous, would persuade the Pope and convince all the members of the Sacred College. In 1616, he obtained letters from the Grand Duke to the Cardinal Orsini. Although the Cardinal received him warmly, the result of his mission proved his ignorance of the priesthood and the fallacy of his hopes. Far from making a convert of the Pope, 
Galileo was ordered to renounce the doctrine of the immovability of the sun and the rotation of the earth, not to teach it and not to defend it by word of mouth or in writing, except indeed as a hypothesis and without affirming it. He submitted and left Rome. For fifteen years, during the reign of the two popes who preceded Urban VIII, he preserved the silence thus arbitrarily imposed upon him. Such was his dread of being thought a heretic that he said he preferred death, and induced Cardinal Bellarmine to publish a certificate of his, Galileo's, belief. In 1623, Cardinal Maffeo Barberini was made Pope Urban VIII. He had a great affection for the illustrious astronomer, and Galileo reveled in the hope that this new pope would be in favor of the doctrine of Copernicus, and that through him the truth would be established. He dedicated to him his work on the comets, and, depending upon the pope's protection, wrote his celebrated dialogue on the systems of Ptolemy and Copernicus. This book, when it was published in Florence in 1632, contained a very remarkable engraving. A vast sea is represented, bearing vessels ready to sail. Three philosophers standing on the seashore are discussing the movement of the world and the revolutions of the spheres. One is Sagredo, the Spaniard. One wears the Venetian costume. It is Salviati of Venice. These were two real personages whom Galileo knew and loved, and who had openly accepted his doctrines. Sagredo proves by his philosophical arguments, and Salviati by mathematical deductions, the principles of Copernicus. The antagonist they are endeavoring to convince stands between the two philosophers. He is robed in oriental draperies and wears an eastern turban. It is Simplicio, a man of past ages, the partisan of Ptolemy, and the advocate of ideas rendered respectable by the sanction of one's forefathers, a man who defends tradition, who declares that received doctrines and axioms content him, that appearances are all sufficient for him, that the abyss into which new thinkers and discoverers are plunging terrify him. As confident as though he had met with no rebuff, Galileo once more set out for Rome. His chief object was to obtain permission to publish this work. After a delay of two months, during which the manuscript had been abundantly pruned by Fra Niccolo Riccardi, and by Per Visconti, the mathematician, Galileo was allowed to return to Florence to publish his book. But his implacable enemies seized upon this very work for his destruction. They represented it to Pope Urban VIII that it was a personal attack upon himself, that Simplicio was intended for a portrait, or rather a caricature of his holiness. The Pope was highly incensed at the bare suggestion that his protege dared to turn him into ridicule. Galileo was at once summoned to Rome. 
at first he was allowed to reside with the tuscan ambassador but not to leave the house afterwards he was imprisoned for several days by the order of the inquisition he was examined on the subject of his book and proved that he had received permission for its publication it is said that he fell upon his knees before the tribunal of cardinals imploring them to pronounce him a heretic for he was a good catholic and would remain one in spite of the whole world he added that if the book was condemned to be burned he himself would cast it into the flames on condition that he was informed upon what ground such a sentence was passed then he read aloud the adjuration which had been prepared for him by the friar Fra and zola his bitter enemy and the favorite of the pope this Frianzola, who had aspired to be the best military architect of that age, hated Galileo for not having ranked him above Michelangelo, and, in spite of Galileo's denial, so thoroughly persuaded the Pope that Simplicio was designed as his portrait that he never forgave the astronomer. The sale of the book was suspended, but Galileo was allowed to return to Florence on the twenty third of september sixteen thirty two galileo was again cited to appear in rome before the inquisition in vain the ambassador nicolini showed the certificates of galileo's physicians affirming that he was suffering from a malady which prevented his travelling in vain the cardinals antonini barberini and ginetti appealed to the pope in galileo's behalf the answer was that galileo's presence could not be dispensed with and that a litter would be prepared for his removal on the eleventh of january sixteen thirty three he received a final summons he was seventy years of age and was becoming very infirm he dreaded the fatigues of the journey in his suffering and feeble condition the plague was raging in the cities through which he was forced to pass and he had an unconquerable horror of infection but there was no alternative and he was compelled to set out on a journey which then occupied twenty-five days though it is now accomplished in almost as many hours on reaching rome he was lodged as before in the palace of the tuscan ambassador but soon transferred to the prisons of the inquisition his trial commenced on the twelfth of april there is no proof that he was put to the torture though it has often been asserted it is recorded that with tears he implored the mercy of his judges he was nevertheless condemned to the stake the terrible alternative of death or a solemn final recantation of assertions which he knew to be unquestionable truth was left to him the struggle in his spirit must have been bitter and the injustice of his judges could hardly have galled him more than their perverse ignorance but life was sweet even to the great philosopher who could hardly have been supposed to fear death and who must have felt within himself the consciousness that existence had been bestowed upon him that science might make gigantic strides through his agency he decided to go through the form of recantation 
the ceremony required him to kneel and place one hand upon the bible and to utter these words which were dictated to him by a priest i abjure curse and detest the error and heresy of the motion of the earth and promise that i will never more teach verbally or in writing that the sun is the centre of the universe and immovable and that the earth is not the centre of the universe and movable it is however related after the compulsory utterance of this gross falsehood rising from his knees he muttered with a look of fierce defiance the earth moves notwithstanding it was deemed wise by those who overheard this declaration to ignore it for the time being after his recantation galileo was for several months imprisoned in his dwelling at rome he wrote to the pope begging that he might be released or assigned some other place of confinement the pope commanded him to go to siena and take up his abode with the archbishop piccolomini the archbishop had a great affection for galileo but was obliged to obey the order received from rome and to keep him under close surveillance he was not even permitted to accompany the archbishop to his summer villa galileo pined for florence and again and again prayed to be allowed to return to his villa on the hill diatrici just as he had lost all hope he received the pope's permission coupled with a command which made him virtually a prisoner within his own walls and forbade the entrance of visitors his two daughters were nuns in the adjacent convent of san mateo a franciscan convent founded in twelve sixty nine now abolished he was devotedly attached to them especially to the elder and in former times visited them frequently during his trial at rome his favorite daughter fell into a profound melancholy brought on by her fears for her father and shortly after his return she died her illness had lasted six days and galileo was overwhelmed by the suddenness of the blow the second daughter now became her father's companion and too soon his nurse for his health was seriously impaired and his sight failed more and more until he became totally blind after his return to the villa he lived nine years though his captivity was irksome he could not have been more rigidly guarded for we hear of his being surrounded by his pupils who listened with eagerness to his instructions and it is recorded that milton visited him milton say galileo's biographers gained access to him either by eluding the vigilance of his jailers or by forcing his way into his presence chassels thus sketches the memorable meeting picture those two noble forms i know of nothing more touching than their contrast galileo is blind the nun his daughter the sole child left to him sustains his faltering steps while with his stick in hand he tries to find his way in the garden which he planted and loved his finely shaped italian head encircled by a crown of silvery locks the grandeur of his forehead 
the purity of his profile, the classic harmony of all his features, testify to his race and his mental powers, while the winning smile, the delicacy of coloring, the bland softness of his countenance reveal the man not insensible to worldly pleasures and the charm of social life. The young Englishman is more grave. A severe simplicity characterizes his appearance. His costume is more recherché. His long golden-brown hair falls in curls upon his shoulders and harmonizes with his great blue contemplative eyes, his melancholy and thoughtful smile, and the freshness of his complexion, which neither sensuality nor violent passions have robbed of its youthful brilliancy. As the twain seat themselves together upon the summit of that hill where Milton can view the entire range of Florence, her marble palaces, her cupolas, her steeple clocks, her bridges, beneath which glides the Arno, what were his thoughts? Had he any prevision of his future destiny and of that of England? Did some inner voice tell him that he would one day be celebrated like Galileo, blind like him, like him condemned to spend his last days in solitude, and like him misunderstood or calumnated by his contemporaries? and yet happier than he is, for Milton was destined to leave behind him the picture of a green and proud old age. It is not known to a certainty at what precise period these two celebrities met, but Chassels thinks that it was probably in 1638. Towards the close of Galileo's life, his persecutions were redoubled, Every conceivable obstacle was thrown in the way of the circulation of his works, and his relations with the outer world, already so limited, were narrowed more and more. The Inquisitor of Florence was ordered by the Pope to visit the captive from time to time and assure himself that he was humble and very melancholy, and his cruel sufferings were heightened, says Chassels, by the consciousness of his own moral feebleness, by remorse for his vain artifices and useless concessions, and the barren result of his long humility. For, he adds, this Italian, half a Greek, sublime revealer of the mysteries of the starry firmament, genius which preceded Newton, followed Bacon, proclaimed Descartes, was not a hero of moral courage, he was illuminated genius. Men wrote and printed what they pleased against Galileo. He was forbidden to deny their assertions, to reply at all. And yet, during this period of blindness and captivity, he wrote and confided to the hands of a faithful friend the treatise which at a later period enabled Sir Isaac Newton to deduce the attraction of gravitation from the fall of an apple. Tenderly watched over by his daughter, Galileo died on the ninth of January, 1642, in his 79th year. Newton was born at the close of the same year. The celebrated church of Santa Croce, the Florentine Westminster, is graced by an imposing monument raised to the memory of the great and persecuted astronomer. When the body of Galileo was conveyed to this sepulchre, 
the forefinger and thumb of one of his hands was severed from the corpse to be kept as a memento. End of chapter 3